You really cannot talk about sickle cell disease without talking about equity and the need for equity. The condition has been well-researched and known for years, but the attention to it and the services has lagged. So for us, it's really important to make sure that we are at the forefront of that discussion. We are the National Institute for Children's Health Quality, an equity-focused organization boldly leading improvements in maternal and child health by addressing inequities and other complex issues facing families. My name is Jay Weisgerber. My pronouns are they, them. And my name is Dominique Davis. My pronouns are she, her. We're part of Nitschke's communication team, and we want to welcome you to Before Birth and Beyond, a space we're creating to focus on pressing issues in maternal and child health through an equity lens of shared learning, action, and impact. Join us as we explore Nitschke's network of experts and innovative project work at the intersection of quality improvement and health equity. Our goal is to equip public health professionals and healthcare providers alike with new tools, resources, and connections to improve how we serve mothers and birthing people, children, and their families. Our main story this episode highlights the need for resources for people living with sickle cell disease and strategies for transitioning from pediatric to adult care. We also reflect on National Infant Mortality Awareness Month and hear from NICHQ team member Madeline Dionfro about connecting her personal and professional passion for equity. Thanks for joining us. Hello, welcome back to another edition of Before Birth and Beyond. In honor of Sickle Cell Awareness Month, today I'm joined by NICHQ staff and project partners to discuss resources for people living with sickle cell disease. First, we're sitting down with Kim Spronk. Kim, can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about what you do at NICHQ? Hi, thanks, Dominique. Of course, I'm Kim Spronk, and I am the Director of Program Operations here at NICHQ. I am also the former project director for the Sickle Cell Disease Treatment Demonstration Regional Collaborative Project and a current staff member for the Hemoglobinopathies National Coordinating Center Project. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kim. NICHQ has an extensive portfolio of projects related to sickle cell disease. Can you share some of the history of NICHQ sickle cell work? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So NICHQ has a long history, a decade plus of working within the sickle cell disease space and really within the condition itself and how it intersects with newborn screening. So we have worked on a HRSA-funded sickle cell disease newborn screening program a number of years ago, and that was really to link people with sickle cell disease and their families and caregivers to knowledgeable service providers. We also worked on New Step 360 in terms of helping improve timelines of newborn screening to diagnosis. And that project was from 2015 to 2018. And then recently, from 2018 to 2021, as mentioned, I was the project director for the acronym SCD-TDRCP. That was the regional collaborative project that I mentioned before. And currently, we are working with associates on the Hemoglobinopathy National Coordinating Center project. So a long history of sickle cell work, and you have really been in the midst of it. How does NICHQ incorporate new developments in sickle cell disease research and treatment into some of these projects? He was really dedicated to making sure that we are working with those who are studying this and on the clinical side, as well as lived experts. And sometimes those are one and the same, but both those groups of people are essential for us to continue to work with and make sure that information is infused in all that we put out. And some of those things are 
the model protocol and compendium of tools and resources that we put together, which is a really an important collection of information from those sources, wonderfully NICU communication and digital strategies department collects a lot of information and pushes those out through their newsletters and through our website, which is really exciting. I have a question for you. With NICHQ's commitment to equity, what are some equity considerations for NICHQ's sickle cell disease projects? Well, for this, you really cannot talk about sickle cell disease without talking about equity and the need for equity. The condition has been well-researched and known for years, but the attention to it and the services has lagged. So for us, it's really important to make sure that we are at the forefront of that discussion as we work with community-based organizations, with those on the clinical side, with those in government, as we think about how to improve services for people living with the condition, as well as their caregivers family members, and others who are really interested in ensuring that care is improved. Appreciate all you do and just want to give you space if there's anything else you wanted to share. Our commitment at NICU has been unwavering to this group of people and to those impacted by the condition, for those who are living with the condition as well as others. We will continue to be in this space to think about improving access to care, addressing the equity issues improving the treatments and research around that in the interest of making sure that all of that information is available. Thank you so much, Kim. Next, we'll hear from Madeline Dionfro, a project manager with our HNCC project. She'll share a little bit about college transition and some educational resources that are out there for people living with sickle cell disease and moving on to college. Madeline, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dominique. Excited to be here. Why is college transition such an important time for support needs and resources for people living with sickle cell disease? So for any young person, this is a really important time for support and resources, right? Whether they're transitioning to college or a full-time job or whatever next step might be right for them. It's a time when they're going to be establishing their independence from their nuclear family. They're going to be taking responsibility for their own needs and their life. And so for a young person with special health care needs like sickle cell disease, the responsibilities that they're taking on are going to be even more amplified. On top of the normal transition that they face during this time period, they'll also be moving from pediatric health care, which often has more support, maybe your parents are involved with, to adult health care, where they're really managing it on their own. And as we all know, the healthcare system in our country can be really complicated and overwhelming regardless of your age. And so for these young people, this time period requires them to navigate a really complex healthcare system. They need to practice self-advocacy. They need to deepen their understanding of their medical condition, all while growing into their self and working out who they are and what they want to do next with their lives. So it's definitely a time where we need more support and resources. Absolutely. Thank you, Madeline. It is true. Like you mentioned, it's not just for folks with special health care needs that adds on to it, right? It's a tricky time in general. Next question for you, where can folks find resources to support transit? So no, there has to be some out there. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, there are a number of really wonderful resources out there to support young people and their families during this time period. So first, I want to highlight Got Transition as a great place to start for any young person with special health care needs as they transition care. So there's resources there for young people, for their family members, as well as for providers. And it really goes through like all the steps to think about as you move from one provider to another. 
And I'd also suggest that listeners explore the 2021 Sickle Cell Disease Treatment Demonstration Regional Collaboratives Program Compendium of Tools and Resources. It's a long name, but it can be found on NICHQ's website. And it is a compendium of all different types of resources, but there is a whole section on transition where we've linked to some really great tools and resources to help both on the individual young person as well as their family through this time. Well, that's great. We will be sure to include a link back to that compendium in our show notes. Thank you, Madeline. And what are some basic steps students transitioning to college or just managing their adult care should take to prepare their medical care? Yeah, great question. And of course, it's hard to distill into just a few steps, but I think I could think of kind of three big categories. So first, if possible, begin talking through transition with your pediatric care provider early. So even before you get to the space that you're going to be transitioning away from them, start asking questions like, how should I be preparing for this? Or work with them to put together a plan. Your provider should be able to help you get copies of your medical records. They'll be able to help you prepare a pain management plan. And they should also be able to help you seek out an adult care provider. And so working with them, you know, ahead of time will really hopefully set you up for success once it's actually time to to transition to that new provider. And next, it's really important for young people to begin to practice advocating for themselves. And I want to acknowledge, of course, that young people with special health care needs are probably pretty good at this already. They've had to do this. They've been forced to learn how to do that quite early, unfortunately. But even so, it's good to practice making your own appointments, um, asking for things that you need, not being afraid to ask questions from your providers. We know that for young people who do decide to go to college, the schools will often look to the student to advocate for themselves. So in terms of both accessing medical care at college, as well as academic accommodations, and you're going to be kind of the one that has to handle all that, which can be a big transition for young people. Practice doing that and making sure that you understand your medical illness and what your needs are. And also uh, make sure to seek support on campus. There are resources like the Office of Academic Accommodations and the Campus Accessibility Office um, that should be able to support you in this advocacy. And then finally, from many of the experts that we talked to, we heard about the importance of community. So seeking out other young people and adults with sickle cell disease, asking them for advice and support sharing your story with others, and just remembering that there is so much invaluable knowledge within community. Oh, the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America is a great resource. They have a database that can help you find a local agency or organization that works with sickle cell patients across the country. Um, Try to reach out to organizations locally and, and help build the support of trusted providers and resources around you. Next, we'll hear from Talana Hughes the executive director of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of Illinois. She'll share her background and knowledge about college transition. Talana, thanks so much for joining us today. If you want to take a few moments to share with us a little bit about what you do with the association, we'd love to hear it. Hi, um, and thank you for having me and inviting me. Again, I'm Talana Hughes. I'm the executive director for the Sickle Cell Disease Association of Illinois. I do everything. So I've been at the organization now for 20 years um, and have been the executive director for about 15 years out of the 20. Um, and I have a 20-year-old daughter that has sickle cell disease. And here um, we just do our best to change the landscape, um, to advocate, to increase awareness, just to really raise the bar when it comes to sickle cell disease and make sure that we support and extend the voices of our family that sometimes don't get heard or just sometimes are in situations where they don't 
necessarily have the support that is needed or even the empathy or compassion that is really needed to fully care for individuals with sickle cell disease. Thank you all are doing. Really important work, and we so appreciate you. It's September being Sickle Cell Disease Awareness Month. We know y'all are in the thicket of putting on some really important events. They have an upcoming walk run tomorrow. So Talana, we wish you all the luck with your, your walk and your upcoming events this month. Thanks. Diving right into our questions, just want you to tell us about your experience guiding your daughter and other people who are transitioning to colleges and universities with preparing to handle their care and what are some of the common questions and concerns that folks may have? So there's a lot. I think it really starts with preparing um, during the high school years or even way beyond. Um, college comes into the purview or the conversation, but it's really in high school and making sure that you have a 504 plan or even sometimes if needed an IEP. And those things offer accommodations for individuals with sickle cell disease. And it's not necessarily anything that has to do with their inability to learn or anything of that nature, but it really is to level the playing field and the opportunities for the individuals with sickle cell disease. So then when planning to go to college, some of those accommodations are kind of already set up or you're kind of used to the things that your child or young adult needs to be able to be set up for success in just a school setting or even for college. And then I would say the first thing to do is definitely reach out to um, Office of Disability on college campuses, because that is then what kind of looks like a place similar to high school where you would get accommodations set up. What's one piece of advice or more? I'm sure you have a lot with your background of helping your own child navigate this advice you give a family or caregiver preparing their child for college transition. So we are literally in that process and have been in that process, I would say the past two, three years now. Tiana is now in her sophomore year of college, but would have been in her junior year, but had to take a medical leave of absence. And I'm um, just having real conversations. Of course, we all have expectations when going to college, but then having to deal with the chronic condition on top of just wanting to uh, fulfill all and check off all the other boxes of expectations of wanting to go to college and be done in four years. I think the conversation that I have a lot with my daughter is that there is no certain time frame to complete. Um, you know, just pretty much have a plan in place. And that goes for whatever major you think you want to have when you start out, which may not stay the same each year. You know, you may end somewhere else and just really live in in the moment and taking the experiences of um, taking different classes and trying to find your passion. But in addition to that, making sure that you stay heavily connected with the Office of Disability and then individually with each of your professors, because it's different um, professor to professor. But one approach may not be the same for each. And it's almost like starting over again each semester and kind of re-explaining those needs that you have or accommodations if you need more time to get to class. If you know, you need more testing time or if the accommodations are more specific around you getting hospitalized while in college and missing classes, you know, what will it look like if I fall behind and I need to make up? Just really seeing um, the room for flexibility. The big importance is just that communication that has kind of helped my daughter to be most successful because she continues to communicate with her professors, communicate with the Office of Disability, the advisors that are there. 
just really tapping into all the resources that are available, um, whether it's during an emergent time or just kind of being prepared for when that emergent time arises, because the whole idea is that I can't be there. Yeah, she's not that far away at college. The location definitely is important. She's not that far, but far enough to be independent. I mean, they still want to have their independence, just really being comfortable advocating for themselves in the absence of, you know, me or us as parents, because things will have to get accomplished and take place without our ability to always be there. So just kind of preparing um, them as best as possible to um, be an advocate for themselves. That's so important. And it's a transitional time in general. So to doubly be loaded with having to now manage your own care a bit. Yeah, I can imagine that it's an ongoing process. It's a lot. The best thing to do is just stay open-minded. It's stressful. Tiana is one of three kids who I didn't have an older than the ability to kind of just get out there and figure things out for themselves. And I still get phone calls from Tiana like, hey, you know, I'm having some pain. What do you think I should do? Or, you know, it's like, well, you know, start your pain management regimen. You no, know, still try to go to class if you fill up no stress on top of your to figuring out what works best for them as they're the individual that's at school. And that may not necessarily always agree or align with what I want or what I would. I appreciate you joining. Thank you for the wonderful work that you all are doing. September is National Infant Mortality Awareness Month. Healthy Start projects help bring awareness to the issue and importance of reducing infant mortality in recognition of National Infant Mortality Awareness Month. The National Healthy Start Association campaign, Celebrate Day 366, Every Baby Deserves a Chance, Celebrate Babies Living Beyond the First Year of Life. In partnership with HRSA's Maternal and Child Health Bureau, HQ and the National Healthy Start Association provide a comprehensive capacity-building assistance training program for all Healthy Start programs. Visit nichq.org for resources and strategies for professionals to help improve birth outcomes. Thank you for reflecting with us on the importance of sickle cell disease support and resources, particularly for those who are transitioning from pediatric to adult care. Stay with us as we close out the show with a piece called Why I Work in MCH, where members of the NHQ team explore what drew them to and what keeps them working in maternal and child health. This month, we're featuring NHQ project manager, Madeline Dionfra, MPH, who shares her passion for creating systems that protect vulnerable members of society and improving experiences for those with the highest need. Well, prior to joining NICHQ, I worked in direct services. I worked primarily in gender violence prevention and housing um, and homelessness. And through that work, I was able to really clearly see how um, when we create systems that protect the most vulnerable among us, we all do better. So, you know, my community is stronger when all of my neighbors have a safe home. When they all have safe relationships, they're able to access education and healthcare needs. So at NICHQ, we're working to improve the health outcomes for children and their families. And through this work, we're really focusing on those with the highest needs. And so we know that when they do better, we all do better. So I think my background has really led me to this work um, in a way that it feels core to me and um, really my ethos. So I am excited to be here. Listen to our past episodes and subscribe at nichq.org forward slash podcast.